check, one, two, check, check. Howdy, check, check, one, two. Howdy ho. <laughs> Howdy ho, Neverino. We're here to talk about the movie business. <laughs> the pictures. Welcome back, everybody, to episode six of Exploring Cinema. I'm Josiah. And I'm Jonathan. And we're going to get into the movies tonight. Oh, yeah. Actually, a single movie. And this movie is near and dear to my heart. Not because I admire anybody within the film, but (laughs) it left a profound imprint and memory on me when I watched it. This film is none other than Nightcrawler, directed by Dan Gilroy, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Rene Russo. Mm. And Riz Ahmed, who's wonderful in it. I think that was the first time I remember really him coming on my radar yeah um this is a movie that i missed when it came out i don't really remember um you know 2014 was a long time ago i don't remember if i was aware of this when it came out i think i was and i just didn't get around to seeing it but you kept talking about it (laughs) (laughs) as i do probably the you know couple years later and um finally got me to watch it we watched it here i loved it i've seen it a few times since yeah, so before we get into the film, though, I just want to ask you a question, Jonathan. Have you ever eaten at Captain D's? I have. Okay. It's been a while, but I love me some Captain D's. So we have uh, an experience planned for tomorrow, the Captain D's experience. I've never been. Never never had it. Never really has it even been on my radar, but somehow it came up drunkenly, of course, um, the other night, Thanksgiving night, to try out Captain D's. So what am I, what am I in for? Well, you're ex expectations should be high all right do you like fish no (laughs) all right well i don't like hush puppies either uh this will be interesting but i you know i i I told um john the guy we met the other night that uh i was willing to try whatever was recommended Uh at captain d's i'm kind of trying to go into it with an open mind does so the important question is do you like tartar sauce no Well, I don't know. I don't know what to say. So you're telling me that... It might not be your thing, but... But my expectations should be high. But you'll know. At least you'll come out of it with more experience (laughs) of the world. That's true. And what it has to offer. And when we were talking about Captain D's, um, it's kind of a random aside, but it reminded me of when I was driving up to Ohio many years ago for a friend's wedding, me and my friend Jake and Wes... Uh, we're in the car as well as my ex-wife Kristen who's awesome we're still friends we were contemplating where to eat for lunch <laughs> and she was asleep like she always did during road trips and I was like hey Kristen what do you, what do you want to get get for lunch and she just kind of wakes up like almost in a half sleep stupor and just goes I don't care just not Long John Silver's <laughs> <laughs> and like none of us had had Long John Silver's for I don't know 10 years like We've never discussed going there. I don't know where it came from. So yeah. I'm just curious if she had some bad experience with Long John Silver's in her life that As affected her dreams or yeah. something. Yeah. Not on the table. <laughs> yeah. Rest assured. Yeah, so of course we all bellowed about that. But Captain D's beat on my mind kind of reminded me of Long John Silver's and how long it's been. I guess tomorrow we'll uh, embark on this brave journey together of mediocre seafood. Maybe yeah. not. Maybe mediocre is even too nice of a word. Uh, yeah, it depends on who you talk to, I guess. But uh, it has its adherence, you know. It's still around. <laughs> I have good memories there. So okay. I'll be curious myself to see how it lands on my palate today in 2020. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is big news in 2020. This is like <laughs> a thing we look forward to. Yes, and we will all be eating on the porch. Let that be known. 
to our listeners there. We will be socially distancing, much like we're doing now. We're socially distancing as we do this podcast, aren't we, Jonathan? Yep. Taking every precaution. I have a bubble. I have a bubbles on my head. Yeah. Was that inspired by Jake Gyllenhaal from Bubble Jake Boy? Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal's best performance. <laughs> by far. 2001, Bubble Boy. Yeah, I actually misspoke. We're not talking about Nightcrawler. We're talking about Bubble Boy tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan, what are we? Uh, what are we drinking here? Well, we've got some red wine. The bottle says Patagonia Argentina Malbec 2019. From Schroeder Estate. I got this wine from a wine club subscription through National Geographic. They uh, gave me a ridiculous entry price offer. I mean, I think it came out to like eight or nine bucks a bottle for really good red wines from around the, the globe. So naturally, I took advantage of it and canceled immediately. <laughs> <laughs> gave me the system. And now you have wine for days. This is really good, by the way. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. And Malbecs are one of my favorite kind of red wines. I actually was introduced to them through the Boda Box. Have you ever heard of it? They have a Malbec. That's how I discovered Malbecs. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> At the bottom of a box. All right, well, let's dive into some film, huh? All righty. So Nightcrawler came out in 2014. The year was 2014. 2014, yes. And it stars Jake Gyllenhaal as... Uh, Kind of a, a loner, outcast type. Really, he's a sociopath. I mean, you kind of it kind of gets revealed slowly. Well, not even that slowly. Actually, we know right off the bat he's not a good guy. But it involves this loner who is basically trying to make his way in the world and trying to uh, achieve fame, money, success. And he kind of stumbles upon this job called nightcrawling, uh, which is basically news crews or freelance videographers go out into the night at Los Angeles. In this case film tragedy and sell it to news crews and sell it to news news stations for profit. So he stumbles upon that and becomes very much fixated on this career and basically makes his way through the, the world of night crawling and creates partnerships at the news station, uh, most notably with, I don't remember what her title is, but Renee Russo's character, Nina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they kind of form a uneasy alliance at first. The footage he gets becomes more and more graphic and gruesome and more manipulated by him. As he kind of delves into some very unethical situations. Right, right. Becomes more ethically ambiguous as the movie goes on and more uncomfortable. But it's got some dark humor. Like the way that he spouts corporate lingo mm-hmm. and like, you know, like corporate culture nonsense. Yeah, he he's constantly spouting stuff that you think you would read in like your HR manual. Or that HR would talk to you about. Because he's... He's supposedly, you know, you, you just imagine he's read, like, every self-help book. Well, in the film, he actually references um, to Nina, Rene Russo's character, that he doesn't have really any formal education to speak of, but he's learned a lot and taught himself a lot through the internet. Like, those are his words. Yeah, he just, he kind of seems to parrot a lot of, like you said, the self-help and corporate jargon that he's probably learned through the internet, like so many of us do. And we all <laughs> tend to parrot what we read on screen yeah and he's so literal minded that he doesn't realize how absurd it is the way he's regurgitating it but his um his lack of a moral compass benefits him in this film and kind of calls into question like our whole society yeah absolutely yeah but before we really dive into the kind of the themes and what the film's trying to say i just i kind of want to take a moment to talk about i guess just the way the film appears on screen I don't know if you remember the opening. I think it's like two minutes of the film. It's kind of a montage of shots going from 
outside of LA. Like the first shot you see is this just empty old white billboard in the desert that's being illuminated by kind of those underside fluorescent lights. Okay, yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's by itself, the score's coming in, and you just kind of start getting closer and closer to LA with these different shots. Mm-hmm. And I love that opening sequence because it really, to me, establishes a sense of place. It has such a Los Angeles night feel, right? It is night, but everything is lit up, neon, glamorous, and ultimately kind of lonely, which <laughs> I imagine LA to be. <laughs> with with the desert outside, you know, with the just like open west on all sides and yeah, the light attracting all manner of things. Moth to the flame. Yeah, absolutely. The film really seems to have a, like a, just a strong sense of place, much like, and you might hear this comparison throughout our podcast, but uh, I, a lot like Taxi Driver really captured New York City in the 70s. I don't think that's an accident. Dan Gilroy was the director and writer, was very much aware of Taxi Driver and a fan when making this film. Yeah, it's hard not to think of it. I mean, it, this is a beautiful film, and they're both, they're both kind of capture something ugly in a beautiful way Mm. the streets in taxi driver they're dark and trashy but it's just beautiful the way that it they show it and you're right this film the whole thing contains this sense of isolation and loneliness yeah despite the beauty yeah there's there's so much i guess darkness within the film and it, it all, a lot of it happens underneath kind of neon lights and in LA at night. It's haunting. It very much contributes to the overall atmosphere of everything about this film, from the characters to visuals to the dialogue, just works, I think, perfectly to create just a sense of isolation is a great word for it, and a sense of corruption, even. The way he, I'm reminded of the way he's in his little apartment at night. He's just like up in the middle of the night ironing clothing and watching TV. <laughs> yeah. And and watering his one little house plant in the window. One little window, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Should we talk about our good buddy Jake? Yeah, absolutely. Do you have anything else to add about visuals of the film or? Well, we should mention the like ambient and synthy score. I don't know what to say about it. I mean, it's beautiful, but something about it is detached. I don't know. I feel detached as a viewer. Yeah. Um, You don't see... I don't think you're meant to really see through the main character's eyes exclusively. Like, we're always a bit removed. We're seeing the way his behavior falls on other people. And the film is very much interested in the consequences of his actions. Yeah. I think that's a good word for it, though. The music does make you feel kind of detached, which goes, you know, plays into everything we were just talking about all the aesthetics of the film making us feel kind of isolated and corrupted. It's beautiful and it's almost it's almost inspiring and celebratory at times. Score is playing while he's doing unethical things. And so mm-hmm. it does create that, uh, I guess, dissonance between the, the tone of the, of the music and what's happening on screen. And so it's just, yeah, it's a little unnerving. It's a little unsettling, but memorable. Yeah. It was a brilliant stroke. I, and the score is kind of a character itself mm-hmm. in the film. And can I just say, I, I think I've said this many times before, What's the first function of a film? It's to be compelling, to be entertaining. And I think Nightcrawler nails that as well. It's just a damn entertaining film. Agreed. There's just a lot lot you can unpack if you want to. But first and foremost, you're going to enjoy watching it. Maybe enjoy is not the right word, but you won't forget it. But yeah, what are your thoughts on uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's performance? I think it's one of his better performances, and he I think he's a great actor with a lot of good performances. You mentioned he lost quite a bit of weight for the role. 40 pounds. And he looks strikingly different. 
first time you watch the film, he's very gaunt and he just looks hungry. Mm-hmm. And he's got all these ticks and he doesn't emote. Or the, the when he does emote, it's like he'll wear a smile to get what he wants. It's all just an act. It's not there's nothing natural about his performance. Right, and there are times in the film, and this is what I really liked about his portrayal of like a detached sociopathic person. Because there are times in the film where the real him, his core, does come out, but it's few and far between. And it's you know it's not this over the top bombastic screaming like raving lunatic kind of performance. Uh, so when when the monster, I guess for lack of a better word, comes out, it's really unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't happen often. But I remember at the end, he's he's talking to to Riz Ahmed's character Rick. Rick had intimated earlier in the film that Lou, you don't understand people. Like, you really, you really need to open yourself up, and because you come off just kind of as a weirdo, essentially. I, I might be butchering what he actually said. <laughs> Later, uh, Lewis Bloom looks at him when he's needing Rick to uh, go into a dangerous situation, and he just looks at him. He's like, "What if I told you it's not that I don't understand people, but that I really don't like them?" <laughs> and it just gave me chills, uh, and then he essentially threatens him. Basically, again, in a very understated way, but Rick gets the memo loud and clear. Go into the situation or I'll hurt you very badly. Yeah. Whether it's direct or indirect, he's always manipulating. Right. It seems when he first starts to encounter tragedy, he's curious. Not upset, not scared, not empathetic. Just curious. And it's really unsettling. (laughs) Like you said, he looks hungry. It's the eyes. They're huge. Like, (laughs) I guess all that lost weight or something... Just make his eyes pop out. Maybe he was aware of that as an actor. I wish I could tell you where I read this. I can't remember, but I did read it. In an interview, Jake Gyllenhaal was inspired by a coyote, basically, that he saw like in the Los Angeles area. Uh-huh. He's like, it's, it was just hanging out in the periphery, and it looked hungry. Kind of looked like an outsider that was just waiting for something to straggle. <laughs> and you can see that in his performance. Yeah, definitely. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see him choose roles like this, and I, and I hope it continues. He's got such range. Right. Even if it's not as extreme a performance as this is, like he's always compelling on screen. This film reminded me of his performance in Donnie Darko. Not that Donnie Darko was a sociopath, but a very like troubled, dark person. And honestly, I mean, that's, that might just be nostalgia, because Donnie Darko, I remember watching that in high school and falling in love with that film, and... Jake Gyllenhaal and I are about the same age. Like, it's just kind of interesting to watch his career. Sure. Like, as we both grew up, <laughs> basically. But if you ask me, this is his best performance. And the fact that he wasn't even fucking nominated <laughs> for a fucking best actor, that is insane to me. Do you remember who was nominated? Can you remember off the top of your head? Well, let me... I've got it here on my phone. Okay. Best actor nominees of 2015. Michael Keaton for Birdman. Hall's better. Eddie Redmayne, The Theory of Everything, Benedict Cumberbatch, Imitation Game, Bradley Cooper, American Sniper, and Steve Carell for Foxcatcher. I saw three of those, Birdman, Foxcatcher, and American Sniper. And in my opinion, Jake Hall was exceedingly better than all of those three. Yeah, and I also saw The Imitation Game, and it was fine. And I think Eddie Redmayne actually won it that year, which is the only one we haven't seen. I missed that one, and I, I don't know that I'll watch it, really, at this point. Unless one of you needs to persuade me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
that it's something I need to see. Otherwise, I'm just going to leave it. It's kind of like Eddie Redmayne and the theory of everything is like uh, Shakespeare in Love. I'll never watch Shakespeare in Love <laughs> because it beats Saving Private Ryan for Best Picture. Are you kidding me? I didn't realize you hadn't seen it. I refuse to watch it because it beats Saving Private Ryan for Best Picture. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking I might run into the, the same vibe with Eddie Redmayne and the theory of everything. I guess it didn't beat Jake Gyllenhaal because it wasn't even nominated, but the principle of it all. And he was nominated by another by a number of other prestigious awards that year. Golden Globes nominated him, the Screen Actors Guild, the American Film Institute put that film in the top 10, Critics Guild, the British Academy. I just don't understand how Jake Gyllenhaal could be nominated for Brokeback Mountain and not Bubble Boy. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. That might be even more egregious. The Bubble Boy episode is forthcoming. <laughs> yes. It'll be episode 6.10. All that to say, the performance of Jake Gyllenhaal, in my opinion, is, is worth the price alone to watch this film. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason not to watch this movie, in my opinion. Which is really, it's a really uninteresting thing to say. I mean, I, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure episodes where, where Josiah and I like dislike things about a film is much more interesting. <laughs> but this is a great movie. Yeah. There's no reason not to watch it. Do you remember the scene where he is talking to his boss at dinner about what he wants out of their relationship? Yeah, that might be the most uncomfortable scene. Most uncomfortable, yes. So in that scene, he's talking to Nina, Lou Bloom is, and essentially tells her that he will stop selling his footage, which has increased the ratings of her network, unless she sleeps with him. And it shows right there... Like, how little this character understands about human interaction and human dynamics. Well, he proposes it as if they're in a business meeting. Right. He's negotiating their relationship, which he has kind of forced upon her. And she's like, basically, is like, no, this isn't how this works. I have dignity as a human being. I'm not going to do this. And he's basically saying, like, but I hold all the cards. And he suggests in that, in that transaction that they're friends. He suggests that. And... Nina replies, uh, this isn't how friends treat each other. And then Lou Bloom replies something like, you're wrong, or yes, they do. And with a very unsettling grin, he says, a friend is a gift you give yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something you read somewhere, I'm sure. Let's, let's dive into that a bit. The corporate jargon that you, that you spoke of earlier. What do you think the intention is, or was, Dan Gilroy, the uh, director, having Lou like speak like a corporate handbook all the time. It's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and we know we all know how like vapid and empty forced corporate culture feels as normal human beings. But then to see that personified in someone who doesn't see it for what it is is very effective. He has all these qualities that are positive things in context and that do aid theoretically in success, but he's just soulless. Right. I think it's an issue, and it's the critique of the film, that if you can get ahead in a society and really succeed by being this cutthroat and amoral, that's a problem. Yeah, I, I've often thought, maybe it's too simplistic, but Lou Bloom is kind of a, a, an embodiment of corporate culture. He's like a personification of that. If you notice in the film, when he's talking in technical and like corporate jargon outside of the corporate world, like to Rick, the guy that he hires, or at the beginning, he's trying to get a job from, like, I think, like a foreman at a construction site. He's using all this corporate jargon and people are kind of put off by it. And yeah. I think it's strange. What are you talking about? They don't trust him. Mm -hmm. But once he gets into a corporate setting, like the newsroom, the news anchor, and he starts spouting all this jargon, no one bats an eye. They actually think, oh, kid's got a good head on his shoulders. 
Once, yeah, once he has a shred of legitimacy, like once he has video that they want to buy from him, I feel like at that point he starts getting away with all that. It's no longer an issue, his like strange qualities, I don't know. I just thought when I was watching it, all his jargon and bullshit they were used to because they work in a corporate mm. environment. It yeah. all seemed normal to them. But I, yeah, I, you know, something you pointed out about his legitimacy allowing him to get away with things that does bring to mind in the film, Lou Bloom starts to manipulate crime scenes and starts to withhold information from law enforcement and in hopes of getting better footage to sell, to up his status within and climb the corporate ladder. And maybe the most upsetting thing about this film is not only does it get away with it, but he's rewarded for it. You see him making those connections with the higher-ups within the networks. At the end of the film, he has his own production crew with a full, or a production company with a full crew. There are no legal consequences for what he did. He only becomes more untouchable. Yeah. As he becomes more legitimate. Exactly. And that's why I've often thought he's just clearly a critique and a stand-in for just the corruption of, of corporate America. Yeah, it does point toward how like we should look for corruption at the top. Of course we should. It's the easiest place to get away with corruption, is at the very top of these corporations. Something else, like, apart from the issue of news in particular, and the sensationalism of news, but it's interesting how they have, their news show has a narrative. Yeah. You know? Um, it's not really news. It's like, we're, we're going to look for the stories that fit our story. If and, it bleeds, it leads. And our story is black and brown crime moving into white affluent yeah. neighborhoods. Yeah. Renee Russo says, imagine our newscast is a woman running down the street screaming with her throat slit. <laughs> that's, how she, that's how she sums it up for Lou. Which is very, you know, disconcerting. I guess it's not that surprising it's not like a new realization i don't think anyone should be watching cable news with the assumption that they're getting right unbiased reporting but this was 2014 so it might have been a little less sure on people's minds at the time I, i'm not quite sure when all that turned to uh just being infotainment basically but and yeah i i kind of discussed with you the other night the film is a, obviously is about corruption and an alienation and i can't help but think jake gyllenhaal is filming tragedy and he's a sociopath right and when i was watching it the first time i ever saw the film in the theater i remember having this thought is like yes but we're all sociopaths when there's a screen between us and the tragedy mm. so i don't know if that was a happy accident <laughs> or if that's something the filmmaker was trying to portray but i just thought it was an interesting choice to have this person filming tragedy and then also talk about how the uh, the news is all about showcasing pain and suffering for entertainment i couldn't help but think we're all in bloom in a, in a sense when we're watching that tragedy when we're watching that suffering yeah i mean that raises a lot of thoughts like so it, it's a narrative film so there's that difference between someone watching nightcrawler and getting a thrill and someone watching actual footage and getting a thrill the we have that awareness that we know it's scripted and a performance but it makes me think about storytelling and, and plot plot is essentially just something going wrong it's always about conflict and so maybe it's no surprise that the news we ingest it has to include some kind of conflict and it it kind of focuses on the worst you know yeah because that's what attracts our attention right that's what pulls us in because that's a story they could do some bit about some great thing that happened and everyone was happy and better off but like it's not the same it's not gripping the way that a, like a narrative plot is gripping yeah 
Can we just mention that Bill Paxton and his limited screen time is amazing? <laughs> At one point, he offers uh, Lou Bloom a job, and when he rejects it, Bill Paxton says, Fuck you, man. You ought to be sucking my dick right now. <laughs> and that's all I need. I'm sold. He's got, yeah, he's got a career of just great, <laughs> great, like, side performances. Yeah. It's so good to see him when he occasionally pops up in something. Exactly. You remember him every single time yeah. that you see him. I finally got around this week to watching a movie from 2011 called Haywire, which is Steven Soderbergh. I don't know if you've seen that, but like, it's a movie about like a, a hitman who gets framed, of course, and then she gets revenge. Okay. So, I mean, at that time, I think there were a bunch of these movies coming out. Taken was around that time. But Soderbergh does it in a really, like, no-nonsense... Is it Gina Carino? Yes. Yeah. Uh She stars in it. Yeah. And then it's interesting because she hadn't acted before. It's her vehicle, but then the rest of the cast is just, like, (laughs) A-list actors. All these, like, A-list men that she beats the crap out of. It's great. But he's... He plays her dad, and he just has this small role toward the end of the film. But I just love seeing him on screen. Like, uh, him him <laughs> yeah. popping up in that, yeah, now that he's gone especially, like, it was just nice yeah. to see him in that role, even though he doesn't, like, go crazy or anything. Right. No one ever says, I wish there was less Bill Paxton in a film. Yeah. I've never heard that. Yeah. And if anybody out there thinks that, please email me and so I can respond and comment. <laughs> so I can send you a copy of true lies <laughs> <laughs> or aliens so. um, or twister even mm. damn it except i feel like oh shoot what's his name phil hoffman philip seymour hoffman he's okay. got the traditional bill paxton side character <laughs> role right. in bill paxton's movie twister the suck zone <laughs> like like if bill paxton wasn't starring in that movie he would have been cast in that part. <laughs> that's a really good point Philip Seymour. That's I think that's my earliest memory of, of him too. Was me too. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman in Twister, playing Bill Paxton in a Bill Paxton-led film. It was kind of amazing <laughs> to me to realize later on that like that guy, the van guy with the trucker hat, was actually like a prolific He's actor. Goddamn Philip like, Seymour Hoffman. I, I just it was memorable, but I just thought of him as like only having starred in one movie ever. You know? Yeah. Who knew? Twister just keeps on giving, doesn't it? <laughs> so back to reality here. I mean, Twister—that's American cultural heritage, right there. <laughs> you're right. You're right. At least for me. I mean, I saw the movie four or five times in theaters when I was a kid. God bless my dad for taking me to the same movie and over and over. There's another aspect of, of Nightcrawler I would like to explore a little bit. We can talk about anything else. But another thing that leads me to believe that he's kind of a stand-in for corporate America is how he manipulates people that are desperate for work. He offers Rick, a homeless person, um, he offers him a job. But at first he tries offering an unpaid internship. Yeah. And when Rick pushes back, you know, with whatever little dignity he can muster at the moment, you know, he just says, I, I got to have something. So he offers him $35 a night, all night, driving around, 35 bucks. And Rick takes it because he just needs money. He's right. desperate. No one will hire him because he's homeless. May have gone to prison. I think it's a little ambiguous. And he does the same thing with, with Nina. Do you remember the kind of the layout of that at all? Or uh, remind me. So I mean, just that he he blackmails her and in, in, into uh, sleeping with him because he he knows and he, he uses he knows this, she's about to lose her job. Yeah, he uses this in his conversation with her and he, that he went to the, went online and researched her and 
saw that there was a consistent pattern of her having like two year contracts at places and two or two years was coming up. So he's he is like investigating. He is looking for people's vulnerabilities. Exactly. Yeah, to exploit. Exactly. And so he finds all that out and views her as an easy target to get what he wants and uses her need and desperation as a vehicle to get a, a, a gain. Yeah. Another like super uncomfortable moment is when Rick attempts to negotiate yeah. for higher pay. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about it. Well, when he does put his foot down, because uh, they're, they're, they're basically, Lou Bloom had, he knows who had, who had killed his family at a crime scene that he, that he filmed. But he doesn't report their identities to the police because he wants to follow these people to hopefully get more footage. And he also knows that there's a $50,000 reward. And so his, his plan is to get more footage and then report them to the police for $50,000. And when Rick finds this out, he insists that he split the money evenly, halfway. Mm-hmm. Lou, of course, counters, well, we already negotiated. I gave you a raise. This isn't the time. And Rick's basically now realizing that he has some bargaining power, says... I'll go to the cops then if you don't. And so Lou, his hand is forced. He splits the money with him, which ultimately leads to, do you remember? He agrees to split the money with him, but has secretly decided that Rick needs to go. Yeah. And in the ensuing, I guess, calamity with, with these people being at large and, and Lou kind of manipulating things to get the police involved at the right time. And there's kind of a shootout. Lou basically orchestrates things to where Rick gets involved and gets fatally shot. And as he's dying, Lou is kind of smiling while he's talking to him and saying, you used my my weakness against me, you know. Ultimately saying, this is your fault. It's really rough. <laughs> it really bothers me. The person with no conviction always has the upper hand. They're willing to do anything. Yeah. And he and he couldn't he couldn't handle the fact that this person who seemingly was desperate now had some leverage and was trying to basically just be fair like that drove him crazy. Yeah, and Jonathan, you mentioned earlier the word alienation, and when I when I think about Lou Bloom's character, he is a loner and he is alienated. He's an outsider. Do you find him to be a product of culture? Do you find him to be a victim of sorts, or do you think that he's just a monster and always has been and always will be? It's hard to think of him as a victim. Sure. There's something about him that isn't normal, you know? Like, he's different than a normal, alienated, dissatisfied person. Right. Because he lacks the normal human desires for connection. Mm-hmm. Probably something innate. So his, his pathology, whatever it is, makes him different. And it makes it hard for me to think of him as a victim. He just is the way he is, and I don't know. Maybe he, right. could, maybe he could be helped, but he's less. He's not wholly a product of society. He's latched onto something in society that is bad right. and that needs to be scrutinized. But coupled with his lack of emotional, you know, c- capability, yeah, is why it r- results in who he is. Yeah. And, his, his, his uh, pathology seems to have kind of latched on to some of the worst aspects of our society. I think the film kind of intimates that a lot of it has to do with the internet. I don't think I would disagree <laughs> with that. But, yeah, but we mentioned Taxi Driver. Yeah. And so other characters like Lou Bloom, like Travis Bickle and Patrick from... Patrick Bateman from um, American Psycho. And Arthur Fleck from Joker. Joker. They are different. There is a crucial difference, I feel like, in that they are a little more normal. <laughs> they, 
they Bateman's have a, not normal. Patrick Bateman. That's that's true. Okay, so maybe they're all a little distinct. But the reason we are drawn to these characters is that isolation is a universal feeling that we can all relate to to some degree. And then to see the extreme is just kind of fascinating, I think. Yeah, you can't help but to watch <laughs> when uh, we see people acting on the worst impulses within us and, and being unencumbered by it. Yeah, I mean, every time I hear a story of like a, a mass shooter or something terrible, you know, I want to know how, why, what led this person to do something so terrible. You know, it is it is really fascinating. Yeah, and, and one thing I, I think about, and it just kind of popped in my head, when discussing these these films that deal with alienation, predominantly the ones the films we've mentioned are all white men. I'm sure alienation occurs throughout every group of people, but it seems like white males are the worst offenders in America, at least, and acting out violently and, and doing things uh, that, that are harmful to others as a, as a result of alienation. That's interesting. Yeah, so two things. They're all white men. One, because it's an industry of white men <laughs> sure. who, are, who have been making these movies and telling these stories. But also, white men in our society struggle with the entitlement that leads you from isolation and dissatisfaction with your life to some of these terrible conclusions. I feel like that's a key component. You have to feel like the world owes you something that you didn't get, right? Yeah. To then want to take vengeance. Right. I think of these films, all these characters are cautionary tales of basically what the worst impulses of our culture and the worst narratives of our culture, what they can do to a person and how they can manifest themselves in a person who's vulnerable to those things and, and maybe not as stable <laughs> as, as the rest of us. And that's why I love these films. They, they, really, they really poke holes in America and the American dream, as, as you all know, is one of my favorite <laughs> topics is the lie of it all. And, and in the most extreme ways, of course, but they, they do show like kind of where some of the dangers within the lies that our society spreads. Yeah, you could look at it as like, you could implicate the stories we tell ourselves of you know, these characters have consumed stories of what makes a man a man. Mm, yeah. And what success looks like. And the world isn't always that way. And when people feel entitled and they feel powerless, you can get some seriously no good stuff. Absolutely. I'll just plug Mindhunter here, season one. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Because uh, they talk about in that show how all of these killers, all these ser serial killers that they interview, they have one thing in common. They have overbearing and demeaning mothers. So feeling powerless, disrespected, and then getting these stories about what it means to be a man and take charge. And So Lou Bloom, Travis Bickle, uh, Patrick Bateman, Arthur Fleck. Oh, had terrible mothers. We can agree <laughs> on that. <laughs> when I, if I were to imagine it, I feel like Lou Bloom probably didn't have parents. He was probably like in an orphanage somewhere. Yeah, yeah there's no way. He was probably if, raised... He wasn't even born... <laughs> he just grew out of I don't know like toxic waste <laughs> maybe Urukai style from Fellowship of the Rings yeah just yeah bleh, sliming out of the ground yeah <laughs> that makes more sense to say I am human he comes up he slicks his hair back <laughs> yeah yeah I think we've um, I think we've really delved into this film hopefully we've given you all just kind of some questions to ponder and some things to look for. If you have not, if you have seen the film, maybe you can revisit it in your mind or watch it again and think about what we've talked about. If you haven't, maybe watch it through this lens and this conversation that we've had. If you haven't seen this movie, just let Josiah know and he will <laughs> mail you a Blu-ray. 
He will buy you the movie and send it to you. <laughs> and I will also include a uh, recording with my commentary with specific instructions on like you know, 20 minutes and 30 seconds of this film, hit play. <laughs> and you'll get to hear me exclaim and gush about how amazing the certain part is. Guaranteed. But yeah, I, I hope you all have enjoyed our conversation about Nightcrawler. It is one of my personal favorite films of all time. If I were making a all-decade film list from the 2010s, it would definitely be on there. So, yeah, I hope you go out and watch it if you haven't seen this yet. All right. What else, Jonathan? Uh, it was lovely seeing you all again, and, and I hope to see you soon. So tune in again for our forthcoming episode on Bubble Boy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as always, just keep exploring cinema. Just keep exploring in general. We'd love to hear what you think. Please leave us some feedback. I'm Jonathan. I'm Josiah. This is Exploring Cinema. See you next time. <laughs>